US President Joe Biden says he wants to move on from the rolling discussions of his predecessor. But will Donald Trump and the US media's apparent appetite for him allow Biden to change the record? A petition in Switzerland to lift the country's coronavirus lockdown garners a quarter of a million signatures. We'll assess whether Europe is ready to reopen. And Helsinki launches a new art biennial. We'll hear how this new addition to the international art circuit hopes to stand out on a crowded calendar. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 17th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today are Monocle's news editor Chris Chermak and our culture editor Chiara Romella. Chris, Chiara, great to have you with us on the programme today. Chiara, the last time we spoke you'd found a new hobby in the form of an icicle. I think it's warmed up in the UK in the past week or so. So have you found any new diversions to, uh, to entertain yourself with? Well, I've got to say, actually, today um, a real ray of sunshine has come onto my day because I've managed to put my hands for the first time on a proper copy of the Monocle Book of Italy, the book that I edited in the last few months and that is coming to bookstores very, very soon in March and it's available for pre-order on monocle.com. Not saying anything, just just thought I'd mention. Um, But... It's just such a joy because it's a book that's full of images of, you know, delightful summer and you can feel the heat from the pages, really. And it's a real motivation, I think, in this kind of wintry, not so sunny London to just uh, get through it. You know, there is light at the end of this. There indeed is. I can't wait to leave through the book of Italy, Chiara, when I get my hands on a copy. And Chris, how about you? Has it been a big week for you in London so far? Well, you know, I can't uh, quite speak to Chiara's icicles from from last week, but I have been going back to my tried and true effort of uh, cycling uh, again to Richmond Park last weekend um, to... uh, Explore and just go for a very nice uh, walk around around the park as well. So I'm still kind of doing those outdoorsy things that you feel you you have to do even when it's freezing cold as it still was on Sunday. But it is slowly thawing this week, so we we are very much looking forward to that and uh, really just fully fully into the April issue of Monocle in terms of the work side. Some big interviews coming up that I'm preparing for. Um, so yes, it's a it's an exciting time. It is an exciting time. Spring is coming. Chris Chermak and Chiara Romella, thank you very much to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. Well, we begin in the US, where last night President Joe Biden appeared in his first town hall-style event since becoming president in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was an event hosted by CNN. In it, he touched on a huge array of the issues facing him in these opening weeks of his presidency, from his proposed coronavirus relief package to white supremacy in the United States. It's this clip, however, that has garnered much of the attention today. It's his response to a question about his predecessor in the White House. For four years, all that's been in the news is Trump. The next four years, I want to make sure all the news is the American people. I'm tired of talking about Trump. 
tired of talking about Trump. Well, Chris, it's you that brought up the irony a little bit before we came to air today uh, that it's that brief response about former President Trump rather than the many talking points Biden made about his own agenda that has been replayed most today in many corners of the media. And that comes as Donald Trump has reappeared both in a drive pass to his supporters in Florida, but also online in a tirade targeting the Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell. So, Chris, to start with you, what struck you most about Joe Biden's appearance last night and what do you make now of the way the media has covered it in the news coverage of it today? Well, Thomas, as you as you say there, it is it is as always quite striking that uh, despite Joe Biden's best efforts not to talk about Donald Trump, it was uh, his few comments about Donald Trump that garnered most of the headlines. That quote there, as well as a rather simple quote where he also didn't name Donald Trump specifically, but just said that all bar one former presidents had called him. <laughs> and he sort of left that open to interpretation for uh, Anderson Cooper of CNN. So those are sort of the main two quotes um, uh, that that uh, garnered attention. And as you say, uh, really sort of the, the focus of much of the media was once again on Donald Trump himself. Uh, for really issuing this absolutely scathing statement of Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, um, really for uh, for having, uh, in a way, abandoned Donald Trump, if you will, just after the impeachment trial. Uh, Mitch McConnell was one of those who uh, did not vote uh, to convict Donald Trump, saying the impeachment trial had been unconstitutional. Um, because Donald Trump had left office. But at the same time, he was very scathing in his remarks, basically saying, if you will, that Donald Trump committed impeachable offenses while in office. The only reason he didn't vote to impeach him uh, or to convict him was because he was out of office. But this could be up to the civil, the criminal courts, for example, to go after Donald Trump. And so that really resulted in the the longest and most scathing statement uh, that Donald Trump has issued since leaving office. And in that sense, it's showing that this is going to be an ongoing fight that uh, inevitably will also be covered by the media. I would say in that sense, you know, it is important because it does go to the future of the party because uh, Mitch McConnell has made a point of essentially saying he would not back uh, in the in the next congressional elections in 2022, he would not essentially back candidates that back Donald Trump. And Donald Trump in this statement basically, you know, fired back to that and said, well, he's not going to back. Uh, he's only going to back candidates that uh, will make America great again and that back his agenda. So this is a fight that's really shaping up uh, for the coming years that the Republican Party is going to have to sort out, you know, who their leader is and what their message is. I will, though, uh, to go back to the beginning and, uh, if you will, to to um, to talk about uh, what Joe Biden was talking about there. And, and it is important to focus on the current president that we do have in the United States. And, you know, it was a, a interesting little town hall. I mean, for me, what I found uh, was really just striking the contrast in styles uh, when you watch this town hall of Joe Biden, and not just to, you know, the man that he refused to name who came before him, but even to the the one before that, to Barack Obama, because, you know, Joe Biden, I think even more now that he's out of campaign mode, if you will, and in the presidency, 
he just showed this very sort of human touch um, that that he's always been quite good at in his career, whether that was talking about the pandemic and trying to be honest and saying he doesn't really know when this is going to come to an end. He hopes that by Christmas of next year, uh, things could return to normal, but saying he doesn't want to give predictions and he will level with people about those kinds of issues. But then also some 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 fun little asides that that I think do go to his character. There was this quite there was this moment where he talked about um, really being self conscious now in the White House because he's not used to being someone who is waited on hand and foot. And he found it you know strange that somebody would be standing there to give him uh, his suit coat uh, in in the White House residence. Um, so there were some just moments there, you know, he talked about the White House being a gilded cage. And those are the kind of things where I thought even Barack Obama would not really be talking in that kind of manner. Joe Biden has this everyman persona that does come across as quite genuine and, uh, you know, really, really does mark a change from not just the last four years, but the last 12 years or more. And Kiara, to go back to the the media's reporting of of Joe Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, is this a familiar pattern, do you think, of, well, if Trump has said it, we'll report it, that's been so familiar for the past five years or so? We saw, for example, just after the violence on Capitol Hill on the 6th of January, that Cumulus Media, that produces a big array of right-wing radio talk shows, it issued a ban on its personalities, perpetuating this line uh, by Donald Trump that the election had been rigged. Do you think that moves like that are sort of taking root, if you like, or are we seeing a slipping back to this kind of coverage that we've seen throughout Donald Trump's presidency that appears to be continuing now? What I will say is that Donald Trump clearly made a seismic change in the way that the media operated in the US and beyond uh, because it attracted so much feverish media attention whilst also denigrating media at the same time. And I think whilst this has had terrible effects on the media landscape, it has also, I think, buoyed a new generation of journalism. It has done something to shake up the system in a very, very dramatic way. And so I hope that off that huge shakeup, the attention that Trump was able to muster will stick with the media outlets, even without the subject. I guess that's just something that we will have to now wait and see. Will the absence of this major character mean a loss of audience again? Or will this increased attention towards the media be perpetuated once that's gone? Um, I think it's really interesting now to trace what will happen to these far-right medias. Will their audience, you know, bomb because uh, there is no immediate thing to catalyze it towards? Or will they become these bastions of resistance? We really, I think, will have to watch clearly how, you know, One American News Network will evolve and whether they will be able to become serious contenders in the long run. If I could just jump in there, Chiara, I think it is quite interesting as well to look for that matter at also just what we do as, as you know, the consumers of media as well, because that's kind of what you're talking about, Chiara. But it'll be interesting to watch whether, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, all of the legacy media, if you will, if their readers are still clicking more on 
articles with Donald Trump in the headline or if they click on articles that have Joe Biden in the headline. And that's going to be uh, key in a way as well and also to see whether then the media sort of go with that in order to increase their numbers or resist that kind of uh, desire from their readers. And, you know, just to watch how that develops over the coming weeks and months, I think will be very interesting. Well, next here on the late edition, a petition aimed at pressuring Switzerland's federal government into ending coronavirus restrictions in the country has attracted a quarter of a million signatures. The petition was created by members of the Young Liberals Party and one of the people behind it, Leroy Bachtold, spoke to the briefing today from our studio in Zurich and he explained why the stance of Switzerland's federal health minister, Alan Berset, felt out of step with the current trajectory of the virus in Switzerland. I think the problem is also that he don't listen to the to the people anymore or not that uh, much as we would hope. They also don't really explain their measures, I think. They're just extending and extending and also they weren't present when we're, uh, we're giving them all the signatures from the petition and I think that's uh, really sad and I would have hoped that they uh, will take five minutes just to come and get the quarter million of signatures but uh, even that wasn't happening. But I'm hoping now at three o'clock Swiss time they uh, will uh, go... Um, public and will reopen at least some things. Leroy Bertolt, the co-founder of a petition in Switzerland to end the country's coronavirus lockdown, speaking to Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, on today's edition of The Briefing. Uh, Chris, Leroy mentioned there there was a big announcement um, scheduled for 3pm local time in Switzerland today. Uh, do we know by this stage what has been announced so far? Perhaps you can look a little bit more broadly for us to see if these conversations that are happening in Switzerland, this pressure that's growing on the government... Is that happening for other governments in Europe too, by your estimation? So, Thomas, when it comes first to that announcement in Switzerland, yes, there was uh, a briefing by the government uh, today and they essentially announced a partial easing starting from next month. So in the case of Switzerland, uh, from the 1st of March, shops, museums, uh, zoos, libraries, some things like that will be open again to the public. Um, Other things, uh, particularly restaurants, uh, for example, uh, will have to wait until at least the 1st of April. So this was a partial easing. And, uh, you know, when you talk about that petition and what they wanted, you know, they they might be happy with some of that. But, uh, of course, the focus has also to some degree been on things like restaurants and pubs that and, and hotels, for that matter, those kinds of things that will face um, another many weeks, uh, potentially months of uncertainty at this point. And uh, that's really kind of, I guess, what you're seeing uh, among populations when it comes to petitions like this. Um, you know, it is understandable that there is a, a frustration, there is a weariness out there. I think we're we're all feeling it. Uh, At this point, uh, of course, it then gets a a little bit stronger when you think about businesses whose livelihoods um, kind of depend on opening up again. And so when when you look at not only Switzerland, but also other European nations, they are really in the same kind of boat at the moment, I would say, when when I've been looking at the news from uh, Germany, for example, or the Netherlands today. Um, You know, there was a point perhaps earlier this year Um, or at the start of the year, I should say, where 
it really was quite clear everyone was back on board with the idea that that lockdowns were absolutely essential and that we we just needed to get through this moment um but now you know with 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 vaccines picking up uh to some with vaccine distributions picking up you know there there is a bit of an understandable shift in that way and i think it's it's mixed in with on the one hand particularly in the european union a bit of a frustration that the vaccine distribution is not going as fast as it should be um which then of course inevitably delays lockdown potentially even further down the line and so that's we're sort of really at this at this crucial middle point if you will right now where it feels like governments are desperately trying to tell the public hold the line give us another month give us another couple of months we know you're tired um but please you know stay indoors as much as you can give us a little more time and then we do hope that we can open again and kiara to shift focus to the uk for a moment prime minister boris johnson he is facing calls uh, right now from within his own party to begin lifting lockdown restrictions in england he has said today however on a visit to a vaccination center in south wales that he wants to and i quote work with the data and not dates when making the calculation of when certain restrictions could be eased given that that Boris Johnson is someone who's been accused for making several u-turns on several occasions throughout the pandemic in the UK does this more cautious approach by him feel like a welcome one would you say a wise approach do you think how's that being covered in the UK today well i think more than welcome and wise um it's probably more cautious because he has been burnt before and i think there is a bit of a wide understanding in the uk that right now this will go on until it needs to because it has to be the last one i think what everyone is trying to avoid is the uh, i guess the, the the implication that if we did open up then there would be a fourth eventual lockdown i think in some way people just want that that they might prefer the mental idea of this being the last time that this has to happen however long it needs to go on for i will say though that i think also here in the uk there is a bit of a messaging problem in that obviously the tory government is very keen to uh, you know boast about the vaccination numbers here in the uk because the program is moving very swiftly and it is one of the few things that it can genuinely be happy and proud about over the course of how it's managed this pandemic but at the same time it's maintaining a very tight grip on lockdown and and how it's it's going so you have on the one hand this extreme optimism at the speed of this and you know the what the changes that the vaccinations might bring but also at the same time having to maintain real cautiousness the main accusation that has been moved towards the Tory government in the last few months has been this idea of permanent new turns you know you look into you look at how we the UK went into christmas and how plans were changed at the very last minute there is this idea that there is undecisiveness on the point of the government and i think perhaps just sticking to the tough line now is easier and more marketable to the population than an undecisiveness and a flip-flopping around 
Well, finally here on the late edition, Helsinki is to stage its first art biennial later this year. Maya Taninen Matilov is the director of the Helsinki Art Museum and she's the head of the new biennial. She spoke to us on the line from Finland on The Globalist here on Monocle 24 a little earlier today and she explained why the event's setting on the island of Alisari, a short boat ride from Helsinki city centre, would help the event stand out in a busy international biennial calendar. Well, Valisar is, is quite close to the center of the city. So just walking off the pavement of, uh, of the city center onto a boat, it's a 15-minute boat ride. Suddenly you're, you're in a very special location by the sea in a forest, looking at old buildings uh, used formerly by the military. And, uh, of course, contemporary art. Finnish and international artists are participating. And of course, walking on the island and confronting art in different weather conditions and different uh, light conditions is something that, uh, you know, we're all looking forward to ourselves and uh, we're sure that it will be a very special experience to our visitors also. Maya Taninen Matila, the head of Helsinki's new art biennial, which is scheduled to open in June, speaking to us on The Globalist today. Kiara, I remember maybe a year and a half ago when Toronto was preparing to launch its own art biennial, which it did in the autumn of 2019, to pretty rave reviews in Toronto itself. It's worth noting. I do remember there were questions, however, about how you establish a new event like this into an international art itinerary, if you like that is pretty full already and populated by some very well-attended and well-established biennials and art festivals. How you get a new event to break through? Well, I think this is a very interesting conversation that predates the pandemic. Um, it's a conversation that everyone was having before we started questioning the, uh, you know, the format of the art fair of the of the Biennale because of the pandemic. Many were just wondering whether there were too many of them anyway. So I think that what we might see, which is the death of certain art fairs after the disruption of the pandemic, was a, a mechanism, a, you know, a trajectory that we were already um, experiencing. I will say, though, that we were already seeing before the pandemic happened a rise in the number of more local events or smaller events and you can argue that that was because more cities wanted to get in on the action right you know you see how uh, beneficial an event can be and everyone wants a little piece of it so um it becomes really interesting, I think, to determine whether you do want these events to actually be relevant on an international level or not, because it's very easy to start a festival that gets the city excited, that gets the city involved, that is very relevant and very high quality. But you need to understand whether you do want it to have international capital as well or not. And I think the risk with you know, pushing for more and more local festivals is that, yes, they will cater to their local markets really, really well. And they probably will give more space to um, up and coming artists and, you know, galvanize the scene around them. And those are all excellent things. But are we forgetting also the importance of the, the, you know, the getting everyone together and the idea exchange that happens at events that are genuinely of a global scale. You know, obviously right now that is not possible. But let's not forget that these are things that existed for a reason. You know, you go to Venice because legitimately in a 
physical from a physical point of view the whole world is there you walk through the giardini the arsenale and there are pavilions from all the different countries you get a sense of the breadth of culture a different perspective all at once that is a precious thing and i think we shouldn't forget that that's an important thing to have so i think moving forward i would hope that there will that we will be able to marry these two things that we will have hyperlocal fairs with and hyperlocal biennials with just a completely different focus to the major uh, large events and that one thing will not kill the other off and that hopefully if anything does have not to prevail because probably there are too many events on the art calendar and nobody physically could attend them all it will be those that haven't quite decided what their remit is if they're going global or if they're going local. I hope that there will be just more definition in the nature of these events. I do think it's going to be, you know, rather fascinating to watch over the next year, few years, how this sort of push and pull between traveling to events on the one hand and making your own neighborhood more relevant and a place that you enjoy, um, you know, where 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 that's going to end up because I think many of us uh, over the last year have really rediscovered in many ways our own city, our own neighborhoods, uh, and our own neighborhood events, perhaps even in a way that maybe we didn't before. You know, for me personally, although this was pre-pandemic, but when I lived in Germany, I was a very huge fan of things like the simple street events, street festivals that would happen in lots of neighborhoods. Every neighborhood would, you know, hold this very local festival once a year, a street festival. And those were... In a way, to Kiara's point, really just showcasing the neighborhood itself. It was about the character of the neighborhood, what they identify themselves as. People from other neighborhoods could come if they wanted, but what they knew was they were going to get a very intensely uh, local experience. It's just a different experience. So in that sense, I, I would certainly hope and expect that travel will remain important and that we will want to see events in their own habitats uh, in the coming years. Well, Chris Chermak and Chiara Ramella, a big thank you to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. A big thanks too to Sam Impey. She edited today's programme for us in London. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Tomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.